Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 28 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues, and ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and moderator of today's program. It is my pleasure to introduce the third speaker in our spring season, especially on such a lovely spring day in Minnesota. Gwen Eiffel is moderator and managing editor for the PBS program Washington Week and senior correspondent for the News Hour with Jim Lair. Before coming to PBS, she worked for NBC News as chief congressional and political correspondent. She has reported for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Baltimore Evening Sun, the Boston Herald American, and she is the author of the new book, The Breakthrough, Politics and Race in the Age of Obama. Many of you in the audience are faithful viewers of Washington Week, and you won't be surprised to learn that the program has recently received the Distinguished Peabody Award given to Ms. Eiffel and Washington Week for the high standards it sets for thoughtful, informed, and timely discussion of political news. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in extending congratulations and a warm welcome to Minneapolis and to the Westminster Town Hall Forum to our guest speaker, Gwen Eiffel. Thank you. Thank you. We're on the radio people and I have a lot to say. <laughs> Thank you all. You have no idea how odd it is for a preacher's kid to be sitting in a pulpit. <laughs> it brings back all kinds of memories which I won't share with you right this second, but it's, it's a little daunting. Thank you all very much for having me here. It's always wonderful to come back to the Twin Cities because I know this is a place where um, we're just popular enough that I can get a free drink anywhere I go. Uh, we sh I have to say hi to just a few people. First, I see up in the corner Fred the Sam Lazaro, my, co my colleague from the News Hour with Jim Lehrer, who's with Twin Cities Public Television, and came out to say hi and give you a little props. Uh, and I also, I, I also bring you greetings from my best friend Michelle Norris from NPR, who's not here today, but her mom is. Hi, Mom. <laughs> She's. She's a Minnesota native, so I get all my Minnesota connections wherever I can get them. And to my dear friend and cousin Kay, husband's feeling, who's here to support me as well. And the reason why, and the reasons why I support, why I mentioned Kay, and the reason why I love and adore family in moments like this, as we all do, is because I couldn't have written this book without having the kind of family that I have. And I'm anxious to tell you about how that came about. But first of all, I want to say how thrilled I am to be in the land of 10,000 lakes and one United States senator. I mean, really, what's up with that? <laughs> I am ready now for you to have two, and I'm certain Senator Klobuchar is ready, ready as well, and I know you'll figure it out on your own time. Anyway, I want to tell you a little bit, talk to you for a little while about, about this book and about this, this topic, and then I'm really looking forward to your questions because that's when I get a chance to learn things instead of just tell you what I think, which, by the way, you'll notice I seldom do. I uh, came to write this book because it occurred to me that there was a story that I didn't realize I had been bumping into time and time again throughout my career, and that's that place where race and politics intersect. I kind of didn't know that. You, you'll recall during, uh, just prior to the vice presidential debate, there was some kerfluffle about my writing a pro-Obama book that I hadn't finished writing yet, so it was quite a shock to my publisher that this is what it was about. <laughs> but the truth is, what I was writing was something far more complicated and far more uh, in-depth than a lot of my critics were willing to concede at the time, and certainly they fell silent immediately after the debate and since the book has been out, because it's about so much more than that. It's about where we are as a country. Uh, to me, writing about it in a year when Obama was running for president was incidental, because I am one of those people who did not think America would elect Barack Obama president. I was completely as shocked and surprised, probably, as some of his competitors were in the end. <laughs> and as a result, I was looking at this in a much broader sense, which is how the Obamas of the world, how the young and energetic and community-based, organized-type 
black elected officials were choosing to do this instead of something else with their lives because they were educated and they had opportunities, why they were choosing politics and what happened when that happened. What happened when they stepped out of line? What happened when they decided to take power before it was handed to them? And I discovered that when I start, started to think about this subject that there were not only a lot of examples of this, but that also we, I had been covering some version of this for my entire career, from my very first job in Boston all the way down to my time at PBS. I start the book this way. I learned how to cover race riots by telephone. They didn't pay me enough at my first newspaper job to venture onto the grounds of South Boston High School when bricks were being thrown. Instead, I would telephone the headmaster and ask him to relay to me the number of broken chairs in the cafeteria each and every day. And then a white colleague would be dispatched to fill in the details for me. I've spent 30 years in journalism since then chronicling stories just like that. Places where truth and consequences collide, rub up against each other, and shift history's course. And none of that prepared me for 2008 and the astonishing rise of Barack Obama. It's true that he accomplished what no black man had before, but it went further than that. Simply as an exercise in efficient politics, Obama 08 rewrote the textbook. His accomplishment was historic and one that transformed how race and politics intersect in our society. Obama is the leading edge of that change, but his success is merely the ripple in a pond that grows deeper every day. David Axelrod, one of his chief strategists and now one of his strategists in the White House, told me after the election, when people do something that they've never done before, I think that makes it easier to do a second time. So when people vote for an African-American candidate, I think that makes it easier for the next African-American candidate. The next African-American candidates and a fair share of those already in office subscribe to a formula driven as much by demographics as by destiny. When population shifts occur, brought about by fair housing laws, affirmative action, landmark school desegregation rulings, power, political power, is challenged as well. It happened in Boston, in New York, in Chicago, and every other big city reshaped by an influx of European immigration. It's happening again now in Miami and Los Angeles, in suburban Virginia and rural North Carolina, where the political calculus is being shaped by Latino immigrants. With African Americans freighted with the legacy of slavery and the pushback from whites who refuse to feel guilty for the sins of their ancestors, the shift has been more scattered and more sporadic, yet no less profound. So I started out to write this book and I thought, how do you do this in a year when you're, I don't know, working two shows, Washington Week and NewsHour, covering an amazing and a momentous election, and oh, I know, I'll write a book too. <laughs> but it felt like it needed to be written, that there was a story that needed to be told, but the manageable way I figured I would write it was to identify, it seems simple enough, identify four or five characters who I could focus on, who would tell the story, profile them, and be done. Well, it didn't work that way. I did profile four people. Cory Booker, the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, Deval Patrick, who at the time I started this book was the only African-American governor in the, uh, in, in the United States until one day I turned on my TV and saw Elliot Spitzer at a microphone and all of a sudden there was another African-American governor. <laughs> and Arthur Davis, who's a congressman from Alabama who is currently, and since this book came out actually announced he is running for governor of Alabama in 2010, which you have to understand in my lifetime, George Wallace was governor of Alabama. <laughs> so to me, this is truly the audacity of hope. What these gentlemen all had in common was elite educations. They'd gone to Stanford and Harvard. Their parents had marched in civil rights marches, some of them. They had knocked down doors. They'd sat in at lunch counters. But these folks just walked through the door. They didn't even know what a lunch counter was. And so they came of age at a time when they were, their lives were shaped more by access than by denial. It was no longer a, can I do this? It was, why not? They told me I could do it. Now, the first people they ran into problem with when they tried to take power like this, of course, were other African-Americans who felt they had just gotten there themselves. So this wasn't something as simple as, I'm going to take power from the white people who always had the power. It's, I'm going to take power from the first generation of folks who knocked down the doors, as Jesse Jackson Sr. put it to me, who got bruised and, and, splint, and got the splinters in their skin and bled for a chance to get these laws on the books. And now their children were looking at the world a little bit differently and saying they wanted to take it over. This created a lot of collisions along the way. I'd argue that many of the collisions were more generational than they were racial. I talked to a fellow 
Actually, I'm going to read this to you first, and then I'll tell you about the story he told me. It's easy to overlook change when it happens, even when it's as dramatic in history as, and, and historic as this year's breakthrough presidential election. But as I stood at Denver's Invesco Field on the night that Barack Obama accepted his party's nomination for president, I swear I could feel the rumbling under my feet. The Reverend Jesse Jackson strode through the crowd, remembering how different this night was from the night 24 years before when he had had his own star turn at a Democratic National Convention. His son, Illinois Congressman Jesse Jackson Jr., held court at a purposeful distance, of which more in a moment. Coy Booker, the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, and Deval Patrick, the, Patrick, the governor of Massachusetts, grinned and backslapped and owned the night as the rising stars they were, are. Artur Davis, the Alabama congressman with designs on the governor's office, sorted through a crowded dance cart of public appearances. Benjamin Jealous, newly elected to lead the venerable NAACP, choked up. He was 35 years old. Each in his own way was basking in the political glow of the night. They were not interlopers or token black invitees at this particular party. They did not necessarily even know each other particularly well, but they were the stars of the evening. For one night, all of the friction and all of the below the radar political positioning that each had endured, much of it obscured by Obama's meteoric rise, was on display. It was a rare lightning stroke moment that finally illuminated the dramatic shift in tone, message, and leadership that has forced a redefinition of black politics and of black politicians. It was the age of Obama in full effect. Benjamin Jealous, who's the new head of the NAACP, the 35-year-old I mentioned, he told me a story that in 1993, he had always spent his life in activism, but different kinds of activism, for Amnesty International, different kinds of groups, but also involved in NAACP. And he remembers going to a march on Washington, which was, I believe, the 20th, 30th anniversary of the march on, the original march on Washington and it was called the March on Washington for Jobs, Justice, and Peace. And when he arrived, he discovered that all of the lions of the movement, the people who had marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, the people who had marched with Dr. King, were standing on the iconic Lincoln Memorial stage, holding forth at length. Whereas all the young folks had been relegated to what they called the kiddie stage, which was over by the, the Washington Monument. And they were chafing at this a little bit. And he, he told me that he ran into Julian Bond, one of the lions, and asked him, why, why is that? Why aren't any of the young people on the big stage? And Julian Bond said to him, if, you have, if I have power that you perceive that you want, it is your duty to snatch it. So the snatching begins, and that's when the problems begin. In each of these cases, the four I, 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 I document extensively in the book, and the others, they all had to snatch power. Barack Obama came out of nowhere. He came from Hawaii, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> he came to Chicago, the most complicated political environment in the world. And one of the very first things he did was try to snatch power from an elected black official. He obviously was elected to the state legislature, but he also challenged Bobby Rush, who was the very example of the old guard. He was a former Black Panther. He had been a member of Congress. and. Uh, you know, this little whippersnapper, Obama, decided to run against him and lost. Lost badly. Wrote about it in his book that was one of the worst campaigns he had ever run. Now, maybe it was losing that allowed him to know how to win when he tried again for something that was seemed out of his reach. But that was important. It was an important lesson that he tried this. Uh, Cory Booker, the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, ran for uh, mayor of New Jersey. He, he actually moved Here's the story of Cory Booker. His parents lived in a lily-white suburb. They actually integrated it by lawsuit in order to buy a house there. Raised their sons. Their sons got access to great education. He was a, a linebacker or some football term. He went off. <laughs> I know a lot of things, but that's not it. <laughs> he went off to Stanford, and he could have done anything he wanted. He could have gone to Wall Street and made a lot of money at a time when you could still do that sort of thing. But instead, he decided he was going to move back to Newark and run as, and work as a tenant organizer and then become a member of the city council. And then, lo and behold, decide to run for mayor against Sharp James, who was also an entrenched African-American official who since had some legal issues, which is to say he's in jail. But still, <laughs> at the time, he still had a really powerful, really uh, strong machine. And who was this whippersnapper trying to run against him? So the first time he ran, Cory Booker lost. 
The second time he ran, ran, he learned some lessons. He ran again. Artur Davis, the guy who's now running for governor in Alabama, the first time he decided to run for Congress, once again against an entrenched black incumbent, he was kicked to the curb. He was, he, and, and I found another interesting thing which ran kind of disappointingly throughout all of these stories is that so often the criticism that was directed at these young African-American whip upstarts is that they were too closely aligned with the Jews. I'm not making this up. This came out a lot. This came up in Newark. This came up in Obama's case, and it came up as well in Alabama, of all places. This was supposed to be some sort of he's not one of us code. He is owned and he is operated by people who are different from we are. Now, you can argue to death about whether that makes any sense, but this was a theme which ran throughout. This did not happen as much with Deval Patrick. He came out of nowhere. He'd never run for anything. He'd never run for dog catcher. And he thought, I think I'll run for governor. <laughs> and he won. He alone did not lose first. Now, it should be said that he probably learned a lot of lessons from not having lost because he had a really rocky time out of the gate when he ran for governor, when he became governor of Massachusetts. So as I'm looking through this, and I'm, I'm kind of sorting through this, and I find these other little similarities. One of the other similarities I found among all these candidates was that they were almost all questioned about their racial bona fides. They were told by black people exclusively, you're not black enough which I thought, what does that mean? What does that mean? Why does that keep coming up? Now, it should be said that white people said he may be a little too black. <laughs> Witness the Jeremiah Wright incident. But I want to focus for a minute on the too black enough part because you know what? It turns out these two bizarre uh, questions were raised for the same reason, which is, who are you? Are you someone who's going to represent me? Are you someone who's going to sell me out? Are you someone who's going to speak only for your community? Or are you someone going to speak for us all? If you're going to get elected to anything in this world, you have to tell people, especially in a diverse community, that you will represent them, that you hear them. And that's what both of these groups, even though they were used, saying it in upside down ways, meant. But along the way, identity became a constant, a constant. One night, on the night Barack Obama won the South Carolina primary, his supporters could barely contain themselves. Bouncing back from a surprise defeat two weeks before in New Hampshire, the double-digit victory thrilled the multiracial crowd gathered that night in the heart of the South. When their candidate appeared, they took up a chant. Race doesn't matter. Race doesn't matter. The chant grew, and it built, and it spread throughout the room. Now, standing at the foot of the ballroom stage was Cornell Belcher, who was an African-American pollster who worked for President Obama, and he was watching in astonishment. I talked to him after the election was over about that night, and he said, here in South Carolina, three blocks from where the Confederate flag is still flying in front of the state capitol, <laughs> and all the history that that is held in that state, and you have a group of young white people shouting, race doesn't matter. Now, do they think there is no racism? No. But were they screaming and shouting the world they wanted to exist? Yeah. That is powerful, he said, and profound and very different. Now, this may have been the only night during the course of the campaign where anyone believed that race indeed did not matter. Sometimes race helped, and sometimes it hurt, but it always mattered. Obama himself was aware of this fact. So we come to this other similarity which I discovered, which is this generational one, which is the fact that no matter what the change was, what the difference was, what was it that drove America to do something so that still has shocked Europe? How could they have elected him after Bush? I don't get it. They're very confused about this right now. <laughs> but we like to confuse them, don't we? One of the reasons that was interesting about this to me was that I also noticed was how differently children thought than their parents about this. I talked to Kendrick Meek, who's a congressman from Florida, who's now actually running for U.S. Senate. So many people since this book came out are now running for big things. I think I may have had something to do with it. <laughs> no, maybe not. But anyhow, Kendrick Meek said to me that, you know, he was supporting Hillary Clinton, and he did until the bitter end. He was a great Hillary Clinton supporter. His mother, whose seat he inherited in southern Florida, and when I say inherited, I mean there was no one running against him when he ran for her seat when she retired, she wanted to support Obama. She told me, I don't know, I kind of heard the drums pounding and all that sort of thing, but I didn't want to embarrass my son. So she stayed quiet about it. 
I talked to Lacey Clay, who is a congressman from Missouri. His father had his seat before him. His father was very tight with the unions. Lacey Clay would put them out of his office if they demanded too much. He thought, his father thought that school vouchers and school charter schools were suspect. His son thought that was the wave of the future. They saw the world in fundamentally different ways. And then, of course, the most famous of them all, the Jacksons. And I don't mean Michael. <laughs> and Tito and all the boys. I was talking to, uh, you, there, you may remember a little spat that kind of blew up during the campaign between father and son Jackson. You would have thought from the coverage that in fact Jesse Jackson Sr. did not support Barack Obama, but he did. Now when you asked him why he supported him, he would say things like, well, he's from Illinois. So it wasn't that kind of warm support. <laughs> but there was a completely different, underlying that, it wasn't about personality, it was a completely different idea of approach about how you get yourself heard, about how you make a difference. And it's a difference which, it turns out, exists between father and son. So I went to Capitol Hill and I talked to Jesse Jackson Jr. and I asked him what he knew about this, because I knew him and his father to be, he and his father to be very close. And this is what he said to me. There is a movement in the black community toward accountable leadership. The paradigm for the unaccountable leaders has radically shifted. And then he said, I consider very respectfully, and this is for the record, he said, my father to be a part of the unaccountable leadership, even though I can completely believe in and trust his mission and his motives for that which he does. But he went on, the press conference, television visibility, lack of follow through, everything is a civil rights issue paradigm with leadership, is profoundly unaccount unaccountable to the masses of people and to history. Remarkable words coming from the son of the man who of course invented the everything is a civil rights issue campaign. Don't get him wrong, he continued. There is a place for the agitation and protest politics of a Jesse Jackson Sr. and an Al Sharpton, but he said it is not here, not now. So, of course, I had to go down the street and knock on Reverend Jackson's door, <laughs> ask him if he had anything he wanted to say. <laughs> I covered Reverend Jackson's campaign in 1988. It was my first presidential campaign, and his son at the time was carrying his luggage places, so it was fun to revisit them all these years later. <laughs> the elder Jackson is keenly aware of his son's apostasy. He said to me, I encourage in our house vigorous debate. And there is no punishment for a different point of view. We have different roles. Jesse Jackson Sr. is the agitator and the younger one is the negotiator. So here we are, here we stand with this new generation saying, here's a moment, here's a time, here's a chance. And the most interesting thing which has arisen for me as I've traveled the country talking about this book, and I'm gonna talk about this briefly and then leave some time for your questions, but it's the degree to which people are anxious finally to have a conversation about race that's not about recrimination and accusation and guilt and blame. It's almost like everyone has exhaled and said, oh, finally, I can ask that dumb question I've been carrying around for all this time. Now, some of the questions aren't so smart, but the point is, <laughs> I actually don't think there are dumb questions because I get, think they get fascinating answers. Um, one of the things I find interesting about this is that People have this pent-up discussion they want to have, but we've been, we've, been, we've, been, we've been trained to believe that whenever we have it, there's going to be hostility involved. So I, as I've talked to crowds, I've had people say to me, well, you know, isn't it just that we would all be better if we just forgot that he was black, if we just set that aside? And I said, well, that's interesting. So if you're colorblind, then what do I look like to you? Because I kind of don't mind being black, it's okay. People have a real nervousness about that. And so I say to them, okay, let's look at it this way. If, first of all, he doesn't define himself as biracial Barack Obama. He defines himself as African-American. Don Cheadle, the actor, once said, you are what you have to defend, which is basically says a lot of things about what happens. If you can't catch a cab in New York, perhaps you're a black man. I don't know. But this is part of it. It doesn't mean you carry it around as a huge chip on your shoulder, but you're aware of it. Or... Here's a radical thought. You consider it to be a positive attribute. The only reason not to want to mention race or talk about race or to identify someone by race is because you consider it to be a negative. 
If you consider it to be a positive, then perhaps there's a healthy conversation to be had. Now, it should be said that even though I am an African-American woman, it is not all I am. And that's the other part of this conversation, which is these people, these breakthrough candidates, these people who said, it's my turn whether you say so or not, they're not defining themselves in one way. The only way they could get elected, especially in the diverse districts they come from in cities and states and counties, is because they're saying, I can speak for everyone. I can speak to everyone. This is who I am. It's clear who I am. I'm not going to deny who I am. But it also means that I'm, I can speak for you as well. You can't get elected to anything unless you can tell people you're going to make their lives better. And that's what these candidates are doing in a way that so many candidates have done for so many years and in a way which I think finally as a country we may be willing to listen to. So on that note, I will stop and take your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Gwen Eiffel. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is award-winning journalist and author Gwen Eiffel. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience at Westminster, I'd like to thank the forum's many supporters, especially Ms. Mary Lee Dayton, sponsor of today's forum. We invite our NPR listeners to join us in the sanctuary at Westminster for our next speaker, Ibu Patel, interfaith leader and activist who will join us on Thursday, May 7th. Details available online at eWestminster.org. And now, Gwen Eiffel, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. <laughs> for those of you in the radio audience, she is really glad to be back in the pulpit. You can just see it. Uh, first one actually relates to the pulpit, Gwen. You grew up uh, in the uh, parish, a daughter of an African Methodist Episcopal pastor, and uh, you witnessed firsthand the role of the black church in the civil rights movement and the changes, the social changes that accompanied that black church uh, movement. Where's the black church today in terms of the kind of changes you're talking about politically and socially? It's a big question. You know, my father, who emigrated to this country from Panama, my mother from Barbados, he fancied himself, I say fancied himself because he was always out in the street marching, a civil rights leader. He would, um, he would take things on. He, would, he saw his pulpit as a place to make change for people in his communities. My mother was always feared he would be deported, you understand, but my father was out there. But we were exposed growing up to this idea that the world had something to do with us and that what you did in your home and in your country and in your county and in your, and in your church could have a direct effect, a direct positive effect. For many, many, many years, there was no other platform for African Americans than the black church. It's the only thing we owned. It's the only place that let us have the microphone. And so that became the natural place for activism. Now, as that has spread, one of the other things I find interesting about the, the characters I've, I've, I've profiled in this book is that so many of them are not rooted in the black church. Not that they don't go to church, not that they're not religious people, but that's, they don't have reverend in front of their names. Benjamin Jealous, the guy from the NAACP I mentioned, the new leader, is the first leader they've ever had who was an, a, a pastor or an elected official. Uh, it, the, 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 the way we define leadership, the model for leadership is shifting, and it is not exclusively in the black church. It doesn't mean there's not still a social justice role and a, and a social justice activism, which is alive and well in many African-American churches. It's just not the only place where you get leadership anymore. Coming from a family that was a, an immigrant family, a question here about the diversity between African immigrants and uh, African-Americans uh, born here in the U.S. Uh, this person says, I've rarely heard it discussed in public forums, but how much of an issue is there between black Americans and African immigrant Americans? You know, I have to say, I think it's overblown. I, growing up, I know there was certainly a lot of discussion about, you know, we overachieving West Indian types and how we always seem to be doing more. I don't think it really has that much to do with skin color as it has to do with where you come from. In order to be an immigrant in this country, or to any country, you have to have, to, you have to have decided to uproot your entire family and your life in order to make your world better. Whether it's your world, the larger world, or your world, your family. And that provides you with a certain amount of motivation, which may not be natural to you if you were 
said, here, here's your path, here's your way, here's the place where you will spend your entire life and here's a way for you to get the job you need because your, foref your forefathers all worked in the steel industry, you too can have a job in the steel industry. Starting from scratch as an immigrant provides you with a certain amount of, 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 of get up and go, I guess, which um, I, don't, I think transcends race. Several questions from the students in the audience. First one is, tell us about how it felt to be impersonated by Queen Latifah. I knew that was coming. <laughs> Let me tell you, it was great. <laughs> Next time you hear anyone tell you that it's a bad thing to be impersonated by an a international movie star, you tell them they're lying, okay? Um, I, for those of you who may not have seen it, the three of you who may not have seen this, um, <laughs> After the vice presidential debate, uh, Saturday Night Live did one of their, their trenchant um, parodies of the debate in which uh, Queen Latifah did many things, including playing me with the same haircut, jewelry, and jacket, and held up my book multiple times to mock me. Um, but I, I actually thought it was a lot of fun, and, I, and she was actually very gracious about it. And then from that same student, a more serious question. Any reflections now uh, on the Reverend Wright incident in the campaign? Yeah, you know, it was an interesting, it was an interesting, it's interesting to look back now at how Barack Obama handled it, because you, he went through many changes. I mean, now he seems to have learned that you'd make a decision and you stick with it, but he couldn't figure his way through that one. He first defended him, then he said in the, the race speech in Philadelphia that this guy was um, just out of step, he was of a different generation, and, and then uh, Reverend Wright kept going around to the National Press Club and being crazy, and it, 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 and it left a lot of people who were, A, not familiar with the, 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 the way the black church functions and kind of the emotion and the, and, and, the, and the way of stirring up the congregation, people thought, what is that, who is that? And it was all boiled down to little sound bites, so they said, who is that, what is that? And finally, the political reality came to Obama that he could no longer defend someone who essentially wasn't defending him. So, but he, I, and I think he learned a lot of important lessons from that, which had more to do with how one gets yourself out of a sticky situation than it has to do about what one believes in, in a religious sense. Another question from one of the students in the audience. What three things does Congress need to do to improve race relations? How likely is, that, is it that it will happen? Oh, I don't think it's up to Congress. I think it's up to us. Um, I, yeah. That, that plus, we, we really want to put that on Congress's plate. <laughs> they've got other stuff they've got to deal with. And, and when I say on us, I mean we need to have these conversations among ourselves. This, there, it, there's no way to legislate the way we get along and the way we talk and the conversations we have and the way we listen, the key part, listen, um, and the way we open our minds to the possibility that there's another way of thinking which is not the way you've always thought. And that's why I think it's really on us. Another student asks, where are the African-American women politicians and what do they think of these young men? I knew you were going to ask that question too. Because I have to tell you, it was quite a dilemma for me. I set out to write this book and I realized I was profiling men. And so because being a woman myself, I went on a hunt. I went looking for the women. And I had more difficulty than I imagined. I ran into a lot of situations where I found women who were older, not they didn't fit this breakthrough young person thing I had in my mind because, and then I had to figure out why. A lot of women who study this for a living, women in politics, told me they didn't know why, but they had a couple of guesses. One of them is that Nancy Pelosi was a grandmother when she became Speaker of the House. Shirley Franklin, the mayor of Atlanta, didn't become mayor until she was in her 60s. Women prioritize their lives differently. They are raising their families. And women who choose to lead often choose to lead in other ways, leading nonprofit organizations, not necessarily elective politics. So that was part of it. The other part of it is one of the themes that runs through all of these breakthrough politicians is that they don't wait their turn. They just step right up and snatch it before someone says it's okay. Women kind of wait to be asked. Um, and the women who don't wait to be asked do break through, and we're seeing more and more of that. But frankly, a whole lot of it has to do with our tendency to prioritize differently and our tendency to, uh, as Mayor Franklin, who had been the right-hand person for two previous mayors in Atlanta, I asked her why she didn't run until she was 60, and she said, oh, I didn't know I could do it. Didn't know you could do it? Uh, we had to shake ourselves out of that, and I think we're getting there. Person asks about a comment you made early in your talk where you referred to people who refused to feel guilty for the sins of their ancestors. Can you say something more about that, elaborate a little bit more 
uh, deeply on what you meant by that comment. I think there's a fair amount of resentment from people who are not of color, that they are expected to apologize. You know, the reparations movement did a lot, lot of that. I didn't do anything to you. Why should I be responsible for making it up to you? Um, that conversation or that dispute um, is the guilt I was talking about. It tends to make us go farther apart. And instead of having a conversation about what's really at issue, we have a conversation about what you're supposed to give me instead of what we can give each other. And I think that that's, that, that halts the conversation. It makes it difficult to get past this point. Once you realize that somebody is just blaming you, nobody wants to listen. How does one say, yes, we can in Spanish? And by the way, I can answer that. Si se puede. Si se puede. Yeah. Are we likely to be hearing that in 2010 or in years ah, to come? I get where that's coming from. You know, I think, I, you know, I, I get a lot of questions about whether they're going to be women, the next breakthroughs, Latinos, the next breakthroughs, Asians, the next breakthroughs, gays and lesbians, the next breakthrough. All I can say to that is five years ago, you couldn't pronounce the name Barack Obama. <laughs> so it is impossible to know what might be happening five years from now. I think that it changes the landscape in a way that makes all kinds of things possible. Several questions about the so-called Tea Party gatherings yesterday held here in uh, our state capital and around the nation. Do you find any subtle racism in these types of gatherings or in other militant rhetoric? of those who oppose Obama's policies? Oh, I don't, actually. Um, I think it's possible for us to disagree about things without it always being about race, um, even if the president's black, or maybe especially if the president's black. I think it's possible that we just disagree. Your comments about the lions of the movement, the civil rights movement, elicits this question. How is the Obama administration engaging them today? Boy, that's hard. Because I don't think they are engaging them much. Um, but there are lots of traditional groups who are used to being able to walk into the Oval Office, as it were, and get heard. And I think that one of the things that people have to get used to is the idea that Barack Obama is playing it by, the net, by those old rules. He is respectful of these people. He is in inviting of them. We, we heard Reverend Joseph Lowry give the uh, closing invocation, the benediction at the inauguration. But you're not going to see Barack Obama with his fist in the air uh, saying, we shall overcome. That's not the kind of person he is. He's much more subtle. And it doesn't mean these people won't be welcome. They will be. But you're, they're not going to, but, but, but with, with distance and respect. I mean, I, I, I find it very interesting now to watch how subtle the Obamas are about speaking to race. Uh, one day, without telling anybody, they just moved out the bust of Winston Churchill from the Oval Office and replaced it with Martin Luther King. They didn't tell us about it. We just looked up it one day and said, oh, look, there's Martin Luther King. How did that happen? Uh, when Michelle Obama had school girls into the White House, children into the White House, and read them stories and did all the traditional First Lady things. And while she was there, she said, and did you know that slaves built the White House? I, this is not something a First Lady may have brought up before. <laughs> so, so whether they're surrounding themselves with the traditional lines of the movement or whether they're finding other ways to speak to these issues which actually have a way of penetrating in more subtle ways, I think they still are very conscious of who they are and how they're doing it. During the 2004 presidential election debates, you asked Vice President Cheney and Senator Edwards about the HIV AIDS crisis in the African American community. This questioner wonders why you didn't ask the same question in 2008 in that debate, seeing as how the crisis has even grown worse in the meantime. You know, there's an interesting thing you do when you're preparing for, for any kind of debate. And in my case, it's um, digging through hundreds and hundreds of questions and think, thinking of a million ways that you can find to tell the viewers at home who are trying to decide who should be a heartbeat away from the presidency in the case of the vice presidential debate, what they need to know. So I, as I searched through and read through all their books and read through all their, their votes in both debates and tried to figure out what their public policy was, I tried to select questions that would tell us who they were by contrasting their response. And I learned a lot of important things which often have nothing to do with the question at hand. For instance, in 2004, when I asked that question of Vice President Cheney and, and Senator Edwards, Vice President Cheney's answers were something like, really? I didn't know that. And Senator Edwards' question was something like, well, let's talk about AIDS in Africa, which is not the question I had asked. Now, I had a choice that night. I could chase him around the table and say, answer my question. Or I could say, 
um, okay, that's interesting, let's move on because there are a lot of other questions we have to ask. And what I found out that night was I got the most amazing response from people who watched the debate who got that this was their answer that neither of them knew the question I was answering. They hadn't thought about it. And that if this was an important issue to you, this was something which would affect how you would decide to vote. Fast forward four years later, and I am confronted with the, not, not many people were paying attention to the debate between Governor Palin and Joe Biden. <laughs> and so I got lots of people who wanted me to ask questions. Uh, hundreds of questions I got in the mail, almost 99% of them for, for Governor Palin. It was like there was nobody else on the stage, the guy who's currently the vice president. Nobody was curious about that. But that wasn't my job. My job wasn't to grill or interrogate her. My job was to try to see how I could contrast these two. So I decided to find questions that would do that. Fortunately, Governor Palin helped me out early on by informing me she wasn't going to answer my questions. <laughs> and, but what was useful for me in that was it, it let me know, once again, she was signaling to the people at home what they should take from this. I didn't have to chase her around the table and say, why won't you answer my question? She was signaling to anyone listening how important she put her commitment to participate in the debate, which involves answering questions. So I, I, I think the question you ask almost is, is less important because some, often the answers are non-responsive than what it tells you about the candidates you're interviewing and the choices you have to make. While we're on the subject of the debate, was there anything behind the scenes about uh, that debate that you can share with us today? Oh, stop it. You want me to go on to the next question? Uh, no, no. I, I, you know what? Here's the thing. Two nights before the debate, I was at home uh, working on my final questions, and I was very proud of myself because I completed them all, and I walked down the stairs from my upstairs office, slipped, fell, broke my ankle. Yes, it was very bad. Thank you. It still hurts. And so, and so I decided that, you know, I, was, I went to the orthopedic surgeon, and he says, well, you've got, this needs surgery, but you've got something to do, so I'm going to wrap you up and send you to St. Louis, which he did. And I went to St. Louis, and I was maneuvering around in a wheelchair the entire time. So what you didn't see, unless you were watching C-SPAN, is in order to get on stage, they built an elevator backstage for me in the wheelchair. Then they brought these two really cute football players from Washington University. <laughs> to help me get on stage, each of them holding my arm, fearing they would lose their football scholarship if they dropped me, <laughs> and plopped me down there, which was great, without incident. But at the end of the debate, people, many people said to me, why didn't you get up and shake their hands and greet them? Well, not because I was being rude, mom, but because I couldn't move. <laughs> Speaking of your parents, you talk a lot about your parents' role uh, in your book, and uh, questioner, one of the students, asked what your parents' role was in shaping you as uh, the person you are today. I dedicate the book to my parents, and I say in the dedication because they did not live to see the day. Um, and a lot of people thought that meant uh, did not live to see Barack Obama elected, or didn't live to see a black president, but I always thought of it in a more broad way. I thought my parents were incredible optimists. You have to be an optimist to move your family to another country and decide that they're all going to succeed. Um, my father was an accidental feminist, which is to say he, would tell, he, didn't, he didn't really like the idea of women in the pulpit, for instance, but he didn't have any problem with his daughters doing whatever they wanted. <laughs> These things don't have to always match up. But as a result, they, taught it, they gave us all kinds of possibilities. They told us that the world was ours to have. And they told us that it was okay for us to ask questions and it was, somewhat, it was okay for us to demand answers. But that you didn't have to necessarily get them all in the same time in the same place in the same way. So my parents, I think, really shaped me. They taught me that it's okay to be anywhere I can be. And because my father was an itinerant minister and we moved every couple of years, I got used to walking to strange rooms and churches and liking everybody. Thank you. <laughs> Clarence Thomas, speaking at the University of Minnesota Law School yesterday, said he doesn't think government... Did I miss him by one day? He, sa he sends his greetings, by the way. Yes. Justice Thomas said he doesn't think government should have been involved with affirmative action. Would you share your perspective on that matter? I I'm certain that's what he believes, and, and it's certainly consistent with every action he's ever taken, but... But wait, 
way, I, I applaud consistency. You have to know where someone's coming from. But here's the thing about Justice Thomas. I'll tell you a little story about Justice Thomas, which really doesn't have anything to do with affirmative action necessarily or, or about his record on the court. I witnessed Justice Thomas once at an event in Washington, which was, um, it, was create, it, was, it was an event to honor young high school students, most of them African-American, because they were from DC schools who had achieved and were, had gotten scholarships and were about to go to college. He arrived early at this event. He introduced himself to all the children. He said, I'm a lawyer, what do you do? What do you want to be? And he got there early, and he stayed till the end. And he talked to every one of those. He didn't get up on the dais or make a speech. He wanted to be there. He's very involved in a group called the Horatio Alger Foundation. That is where his commitments are. So who am I to say, because his politics are one way or another, that he's not committed in the way that he is? You work in the media, and do you think that the public media network is focusing too much on East and West Coast and ignoring the Midwest? And by the way, this questioner points out that you referred to Minnesota during the primary as, quote, reliably Republican. I did? Oh, I don't think that could have been me. That was the other black woman in television. Everyone knows that Minnesota is reliably nothing. I mean, th this is the state that elected Governor Jesse Ventura. Come on. How, I, I cover that race. How could I have said that? No, I, I you know, I, I, don't, I do agree, however, that we do tend to overlook, you know, the middle of the country, in what, unless there's something, there's a flood, or, or something else how, happening, a mass murder. I mean, I think that we're not very good at reaching outside of ourselves. I, I, I am a great fan of the idea of diversity in newsrooms, and not just public television newsrooms, all. And when I say diversity, I don't mean there should be one black guy sitting there covering one piece of the news. I mean that we need to have people from various backgrounds, whether it's people from, who went to land-grant colleges, as well as people who went to elite schools, as well as people who didn't maybe get, get a degree at all. And that the broader array, array of people you have with different backgrounds, immigrants and non-immigrants, and people who've lived in one place all their lives and people who have moved and lived around the world, the better chance you're going to hear someone say, well, you know, I, I heard it this way. That's what we strive for at the news hour a lot. We listen really hard to try to see if there's a different way of telling the story. And that's, that means that you need to have a couple of folk from the Midwest who are willing to move to the East or West where all the national networks are and have a way of having a say. I think it, I think it really counts almost more than who's in front of the camera talking to you. As an African-American journalist, are you coming under any criticism if you step out of line in supporting President Obama? How do you know I supported President Obama? <laughs> ah, you don't know, do you? Um, I don't, I, criticism from whom? I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a journalist, which means I come under criticism from everybody. And that if a day passes where I'm only being criticized by one side or the other, it's a day without sunshine. I, I, I expect people to criticize me. I expect people to keep my feet to the fire on whatever I do or whatever it's perceived that I do, as long as they also listen to my answer or my defense. Some have proposed the creation of a truth commission uh, related to possible violations of law by the Bush administration. As a journalist, do you think there's a story there? Oh, there's definitely a story there because it doesn't go away. Um, I just don't know whether it's ever going to happen. Um, there, there are this administration has signaled very clearly that they're not much interested in looking backward. Um, a lot of their most fervid supporters, liberal supporters, have said you can't move forward unless you know what it is you've done wrong. Um, and I don't think that's sorted itself out yet. I think we've heard very clearly, however, from the president and from his attorney general that they're not particularly interested in expending the time and energy in a time of national crisis for various other reasons trying to look back. Um, you could argue that, and I think it's going to be argued for a while. Another question from the student. What contributions could white corporate America make to help bridge the economic gap, gap between blacks and whites without feeling guided by affirmative action rules and laws? Well, white corporate America has a lot of other problems right now. <laughs> and I don't think the responsibility is only on white corporate America, whatever that means. I think that there are a million different ways that you can contribute to making the community better, which doesn't mean that you're going to dump money on a particular program. It means that you're going to create a way for the community to be self-sustaining in itself. And that's the community in which you live. I, I, you know, I, don't, I think that we, we benefit by not 
categorizing too broadly who's good, who's bad, who's responsible, who's not responsible, and understand that it's made up of a million different little pieces which have to find a way to work together. Will you, com will you comment on the impact of, on the future if creative and critical thinking were taught more broadly in our schools today? Creative and critical thinking comes from a student. Well, you know, I, I, creative and critical thinking ought not to be just a course that's taught. It ought to be a way of thinking, a way of, of focusing. It, I think it's part of what I'm proposing here, which is that we take all of our old-fashioned knee-jerk ways of looking at things and say, okay, maybe there's another point of view, or maybe there's another approach, or maybe if we take the label away, we can actually have the conversation. Um, take away the liberal label, take away the affirmative action label, take away whatever it is you decide it is, um, and find a way to reach broader. If there's anything I think that we have the potential for in, with this administration is that that's the kind of talk they talk, and then we'll see if there's, it's the walk they walk. Given what's gone on here in this country in the last uh, 18 months, are you hopeful in the future for this country and the issue of race here? I am always hopeful. I'm, I'm a terrible, terrible optimist, or I wouldn't be in journalism, because Lord knows we're not doing so well right now. Um, I think it's possible. I think it's possible because, and I think I'm more hopeful now than I was at this time last year, precisely because of coming out to groups like this and hearing people think aloud and wrestle with how we get there. I think that we are at a point in, in, in our nation where we are far ahead of where we thought we could be. Uh, people in France said we, would, we couldn't, can't imagine a point in which we would be electing a minority member of our culture to be, to be the leader of the country. We're ahead where we like to be as Americans. So there's a potential for us to have conversation. There's a potential for us to, I wouldn't say get past race, because I think get past race means setting it aside before you've thoroughly examined what the issue is. But to find a way to make race part of the normal conversation without it being a hindrance to our conversation and to our growth. One final question, short answer, please. With your grasp of issues, fluency, and negotiating skills, why don't you run for office? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that is a guaranteed short answer. Why would I run for office when I get to ask all the questions? Thank you, Gwen Eiffel. Thank you.